it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to World. 
world's finest true believers. Each episode, a guest and I will discuss one of our favorite comic book arcs or graphic novels from any publisher. My name is Chris. Thanks for joining us. Now let's get started. Well, thank you all for joining me for another new episode of World's Finest True Believers. We are part of the Geek Ultimate Alliance Network with eight shows. On Mondays, we got Slice of Film alternating bi-weekly with Ranger Alliance, Tuesdays, DC Alliance, Wednesday's Superhero Discussion, Star Wars Alliance on Thursdays, Marvel Alliance on Fridays, a walk through the multiverse uh, alternating bi-weekly on Saturdays, and this show is monthly at the last Sunday of the month. We also have a Patreon. If you want to support us and throw a couple of shekels our way, we want to thank our patrons. We can't do this without your support. We've got two tiers. Our dollar tier to show is our tip jar to say, hey, you think we're doing a good job, and our $5 tier, which gives you early access episodes, ad-free episodes, and Patreon-exclusive shows. If you can't join us on Patreon, we totally understand, but if you can rate and review the Geek Ultimate Alliance Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever podcast your choice may be, we greatly appreciate it. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Finest Believers and me personally at Chris Balga, and you can follow the Geek Ultimate Alliance Network on Twitter at GUA Pod Network. All right, listeners, I have a special treat for you. As you can see from the title, this is not going to be, uh, this is going to be, a, as we do these from time to time, creator spotlights. And I've got a heck of a guest for you all to meet today. Uh, our guest today is Mr. Mike Grell. Uh, in a career that has spanned uh, pretty much at, at 50 years, a little over 50 years, he has written and drawn for DC, Marvel, Image, First Comics, and Pacific Comics. The characters he has helped either shape or redefine include Green Arrow, Warlord, John Sable, Aqua. Man, Batman, The Phantom Stranger, Superboy, and The Legion of Superheroes, Iron Man, and James Bond, just to name a few. He is also the winner of the Inkpot Award, which is given to the individuals for their contributions to the worlds of comics, science fiction, and fantasy, film, TV, animation, and fandom services. So, Mr. Grell, I would l- like to welcome you officially to World's Finest True Believers. Thank you so wow. much for coming on. I, I sound like a hell of a guy. I'd like to meet me sometime. <laughs> Well, you know, again, it's uh, you definitely have a, have a storied career, and like I said, that's just that's just a small sampling of what you have done in your in your very long career. So, but thank you again for coming on the show. You're welcome. Uh, actually, I'm uh, I'm I'm closing out my 49th year. Okay. Yep, I started in 1973. So. I gave you uh, an extra year just for good measure. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It feels like 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah, feels like 50. Well, before we uh, before we we got on, I, I mentioned to you I'm a fan of the movie uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and you hinted at a, a story you'd like to tell about that before we get into kind of your, your career as a whole. So, uh, so what, what what is the story you have to tell? Yeah, uh, in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, the the tagline at the end after after Jimmy Stewart has revealed the secret to who actually shot Liberty Valance. Um, the the um, newspaper guy who's interviewing him uh, asked if he minds if he if he would just print the print the legend instead, and mm-hmm. uh, the line is when the when the legend exceeds the truth, print the legend. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a I had a, a reporter from Chicago call me up and asked me if, it, if the story was true that when I went into First Comics to negotiate for Sable, John Sable Freelance, I, I took out a loaded forty-five and set it on the boardroom table and said, okay, let's talk. Um, that, that's not exactly true. What happened was that the negotiations were complete, and I reached into my briefcase looking for a pen 
and I happen to have a 45 automatic <laughs> in, in a briefcase. Um, uh, well, it was, it, I, I just had my birthday celebration, and my oldest brother gave me this gun as a birthday present, and um, I I had it in, in a briefcase, of course, and someone spotted it, and they asked if they could look at it. So I took it out, unloaded it, and uh, handed it over, and uh, it made the rounds of the table. Uh, and uh, someone you know, finally handed it back to me, and I put it away. Um, and and that, <laughs> wow. that's the actual true story. And the reporter thought for a second, and she said, um, do you mind if we just print the legend? And I said, when the legend exceeds the truth, print the legend. So wow, that's, that... That, that's how that happened. That's well, the that, truth. <laughs> if it keeps you getting the jobs and keeps you getting uh, noticed that that gets you into the, the meetings at that point, you know, what, where's the harm, right? Well, <laughs> these days I'm pretty sure the, the harm would be pretty significant. Well, yeah, yeah, the, yeah de de definitely these days. But back, back then it was, it's definitely uh, an interesting one that, uh, <laughs> wow, that is, that, that is an interesting way to go. But, um, yeah. well, the typical, whether it's a show proper or, or in creator spotlights, always ask this, this question is, what was the first comic book or graphic novel that hooked you? The first one. Um, I would say probably um, Magnus Robot Fighter. That was, that was uh, Russ Manning uh, did that, that book way back when. Um, um, Russ was the first artist uh, whose work I learned to recognize by his drawing style. And uh, he later took on the Tarzan comic book. He had been uh, drawing the feature Brothers of the Spear uh, as a, a backup story. And uh, um, he was the first artist whose work struck me and I, I learned to look for uh, beyond that. Um, the, the one that really made the biggest impression on me was much later in life after I had gotten away from comics for a very long time, um, like in my, in my high school years, uh, I had all the Marvel 60s comics and, and most of the DC, what would be called was Silver Age, um, you know, the, the, the number one issues, first appearance issues and stuff like that were under my bed when I went off to college. And uh, somehow the, the box managed to disappear <laughs> between, <laughs> yeah, between then and, and the time that I, that I uh, uh, became a professional. But uh, uh, beyond that, uh, the book that made the biggest impression on me was Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Uh, the 1969 70 run that uh, Denny and Neil and Dick had. Um, I was in Saigon when a fellow came from the States and uh, he had a small stack of his favorite comic books in tow. And in there was Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And of course, I had, I had gotten away from comics when Batman was portrayed as having this square blocky chest and a, a chiseled jaw you know uh, everything was, was more cartoony 
and all of a sudden here was this book that was so beautifully illustrated and uh, that changed my whole outlook right there. Well, that is definitely one of the the sto- storied, you know, you know, definitely on people's top ten list of uh, favorite stories of all time. So I'd say for something that uh, story that to get you back into it and get you hooked back into it, I'd say that's a, that's a heck of a one. Uh, yeah, yeah, can't can't get any better than that. So you, it kind of is a good segue to to my next question is you mentioned uh, Denny and Neil at that point would are they amongst the ones that kind of influenced you, you as a comic book writer and artist because you're one of those that's a one-two punch oh yeah absolutely um i at, at that stage of uh my well what was going to be my career um i was really only interested in doing newspaper comic strips that was my that was my goal that was my dream and uh Unfortunately, when I went to New York and tried to break into the business and discovered that everybody had bat in the hatches against uh, against uh, adventure-style strips. So I was left out, um, but managed to, managed to uh, talk my way in uh, because I ran into... Um, uh, I, I was at um, New York. Comic Con, and uh, showed my portfolio to Saul Harrison from DC Comics, and uh, as I was turning away from the table, an older guy, and by older I mean the guy, the creaky old guy, about twenty years younger than I am right now, uh, stopped <laughs> stopped me and uh, asked to take a look at my portfolio, and uh, um, turned up the Irv Novik, who was the Batman artist at the time, and told me in no uncertain terms to get my carcass up to Julie Schwartz's office and show him what I had. Um, I was, because I was so strongly influenced by Neil, um, that was the the style that I was attempting to emulate. And um, every every decade seems to have their their defining style. And uh, Neil defined the the 70s and and, uh, uh, I, I guess he, he defined the 70s the way uh, John Byrne would have defined the 80s and uh, Jack Kirby would have defined the, the 50s and 60s um, uh, and and so on and so on, uh, right on down to um, guys like Jim Lee and uh, Todd McFarlane who defined the 90s. You know? um, and if you're you're attempting to break into an industry, it sure as heck helps if you can draw in what's the popular style at the time, that's for sure. And uh, that just happened to be my, my avenue in. Um, and and it, it worked. Um, I, I have to say that, honestly, uh, I kind of doubt that I'd get hired, hired today showing a portfolio that I had, but I was lucky in several respects um, Neil had uh, left comics for commercial art mostly and uh, uh, was having great success with that and uh, the industry was hungry for that style of illustration so uh, that was that was my foot in the door if you will um, and, and 
because of that, it, it led to other stuff. It led me to um, doing backups of uh, both Green Lantern and Green Arrow. And then um, as time wore on, I, I was fortunate enough to be in the office the day that uh, word came down that Denny was going to resurrect the Green Lantern Green Arrow title. And I went straight to his office and said, okay, who do I have to kill? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and I, the way I tell it, then he said, put the gun down and the job is yours. But that wasn't, wasn't actually what happened. Um, I, uh, I make light of it, but uh, I, I was just adamant that I wanted that assignment more than anything. And uh, I had already worked with him on uh, uh, several backup stories, and uh, it was a, an easy sell. Um, I, I think I had the, the great good fortune to be there on the day that Neil wasn't, and, and uh, I talked my way into the job. Hey, you know, whatever it takes, right? Right. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you can either be good or you can be lucky, and sometimes it's just better to be lucky. Yep, yep. And, you know, no one will ever take turn down luck if it makes good makes you good fortune at that point. Yeah, right, right. You know, you're one of the, like I would mentioned, you're one of the, the few creators that does not just specialize in one or the other. You do both art and writing at that point. Um, you came in as as an artist at that point, but what inspired you to kind of take on writing duties as well? Uh, I, because I was uh, interested in, in doing newspaper strips, um, I had already written uh, my my own feature uh, called Savage Empire, which later grew up to be the Warlord. Um, and uh, I've, I've always believed that if you can create interesting pictures you should be able to create interesting stories to go with that's probably from uh, my my childhood uh, experiences where um, number one we didn't have TV when I was a little kid I never saw TV until I was eight and we didn't get one until I was 11 uh, but in the meantime we had comic books and comic strips and movies and uh, um, radio so you learn to create the mental pictures of what's happening along with the, along with the audio that's going on. And it's uh, something that has, has served me really well. Um, and I, I think writing storytelling always came naturally for me. If someone asked me, uh, are you a writer or an artist? I can't really pick one or the other. Uh, I'll say that... Um, Writing is um, it's more fun, actually. It, it, it's actually easier than uh, drawing. Uh, the writing is where all the creative stuff happens, all the creative juices get to flowing, and drawing is where all the labor happens. Now, um, a writer can get by with uh, a, a, a two-word description right armies clash right mm -hmm. but then the artist has to come in and draw two armies right <laughs> yeah. that's that's just that's just just the way of it um and uh you know typing those two words might take you know, five seconds 
but drawing those two words takes 15 or 18 hours, and that can that can be a bit of a bear. Hardly yeah. anybody, uh, uh, hardly any writer sits down and spends 15 or 18 hours at the typewriter, <laughs> typewriter at the computer. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. dating myself again. Um, um, and, but it's very common for artists to spend that long. Um, it, it just is one of those things. No, it's, it's, it's great. Like you said, you get, you get the perspective of, you know, like you said, the, the writer can spend a lot less time than the artist, but you have the respect for, you know, if I'm going to write this, I also have to draw it, so I gotta <laughs> pick my battles of what you want to do. But uh, you... Yeah, every now and then I'm I'm inspired by uh, another artist to dig deeper and uh, um, not give up. Um, I I did a uh, later version of the Warlord where uh, I went back to that feature after years and years. Uh, for the 35th anniversary, I wrote a, a story where I killed him off. And I killed off, killed off the character. I may be jumping ahead here in the, in the time frame. But um, just prior to doing that series, I run into Billy Tucci, who was working on his um, um, Sergeant Rock story. Uh, what was it called? The Lost Battalion. And... Um, Billy's work was just incredibly beautiful and detailed in the extreme. And every mm-hmm. time I would find myself wanting to cut corners, I think to myself, "Yeah, but what would Billy do?" And I'd just knuckle down, you know, put my head down and get the job done because uh, I, knew, I knew that he wouldn't cut corners. So why should I? And and the, the end result, I think, was probably my best work. That's definitely a heck of a comment to Billy at that point. Um, if, you, if you're given him a, a, that that compliment face to face, or uh, yes, yes, I have. Yeah. Yes, I have. And, <laughs> and, and and he's he's such a sweet guy. Uh, he he took it for for what it was worth and and uh, politely thanked me. Uh, I I hope he was justifiably proud. But uh, whether or not, uh, it's still a fact. Yep, there, there you go at that point. So, well, you, you, you've done so well at making these transitions so much easier at that point. You, you mentioned, you know, heading to Warlord at that point. Um, definitely one of your one of your many celebrated creations. Can you talk to me about the uh, the genesis of the character and how that kind of became about? Sure. Um, uh, it, was, it was mostly BS. <laughs> I, I started out wanting to do a, a comic strip, and... Uh, when I went out to New York in 73, I had um, a comic strip in my portfolio called Savage Empire. And it was the story of uh, an archaeologist who falls through a time warp and winds up in Atlantis. And uh, nobody was buying. I mean, absolutely nobody was buying. Uh, so back in the bag it went. And... Uh, um, after I got established with DC Comics, the word came down that um, Atlas Comics was firing up their operations and they were offering uh, creator ownership and $100 per page. And that was phenomenal. I mean, my rate at the time 
was $42.50 for pencils and inks at D.C. And, of course, there was no creator ownership, unlike um, comic strips where um, the artists uh, on comic strips own their own creation. So um, I took my Savage Empire portfolio and went trooping over to Atlas Comics and uh, did my pitch, and the editor, um, a fellow by the name of Jeff Roden, um, said he liked it, I wanted to, wanted to do it, and I said, well, look, uh, I have commitments with DC, I have to fulfill those, and I want to get two issues in the can before you announce anything. He said, sure, no problem. I walked from his office to DC, which was about 20 minutes across town, and when I got there, Carlos Infantino was waiting for me in the lobby because Roden had waited until I walked out to the, to the door before picking up the phone. Oh, to no. Carmine, <laughs> that, that he had, that he said, I got your boy grill tied up. And uh, Carmine wanted to know why the hell I hadn't bought the property to him. And I, I said, well, for starters, you haven't had much luck with sword and sorcery type material, which is true. Um, and and to top it off, a hundred bucks a page in creator ownership. And uh, Carmine said, "I can't give you creator ownership. We don't do that. But what I can give you is top rate and a one-year guarantee, which is more than you're going to get from Atlas, because the odds are they're going to disappear in six months." And he was exactly right there. Not at all did Atlas disappear. Um, None of the guys who went over there to create their books wound up owning their material. Uh, Atlas wound up owning it all. Uh, and that that $100 a page lasted for about two issues, maybe three, and they fired a whole bunch and hired foreign artists who were willing to work for 25 bucks a page. And it, it brings that, up that brings up that old adage: if it sounds too good to be true, it yeah. may it may very well be. Well, in in so many ways, in so many ways, um, and I'll come back to that too. Um, so, um, Carmine said, "Well, why don't you why don't you give me the pitch and, and we'll see what I think." And as I'm walking in the door to his office, his phone is ringing, and he excused himself to take the call for about all of three minutes and during that time my brain activated and said you dummy if he buys this you lose it and during that three minute phone call I jettisoned my whole storyline about the, the archaeologist in Atlantis and came up with uh, the concept for the world as a, a SR-71 spy pilot whose plane is damaged in, in his effort to uh, come back from Russia, he takes what he thinks is a shortcut straight across the North Pole and winds up entering the, the opening at the North Pole that leads to the world to the center of the Earth. I had just finished reading a book called The Hollow Earth, and um, in there I, I learned that before the turn of the 20th century, uh, there had been uh, no fewer than 87 titles written 
on the subject of the hollow earth was a very popular concept, uh, not science fiction concept, a, a scientific theory uh, concept that was, that was very, very popular. And included in those were um, the journey to the center of the earth, which had been one of my favorite books and, and movies when I was a kid. I read the book maybe eight times uh, while I was in high school. And the, I saw the movie probably, uh, I, don't, I won't say uh, 25, but by now I have seen it about 25 times. Um, and it still holds up. Uh, but the, the result of that was that uh, when Carmine asked me questions like, well, what's this place called? immediately came out with Scartaris, which is the name of the mountain peak in during the center of the earth that points the way on a certain day in May, um, cast a shadow that, that points the way to the opening of the volcano that uh, leads to the center of the earth and sets everybody on their journey. Um, I, I changed all the names, um, except the the name of the, the villain Demos. I couldn't think of a better name for uh, a villain, and I still can't. I still, still think it's probably one of the best villain names ever. Um, so I, I pitched that, and uh, Carmine said, okay, um, take this to Joe Orlando, and if Joe likes it, uh, I'll give you a one-year guarantee. So I go to Joe. Joe's the only one who hit me with a question that I couldn't answer because I remember where I said I changed everybody's name. Yep. Uh, hadn't thought of a, uh, hadn't thought of a name for the hero yet. Yeah, I, <laughs> I knew I was going to call it the Warlord. Um, Charlton Heston had, had just done a, a movie or, or shortly before called the Warlord. Two different word, two words, and mine was the Warlord, one word, um, and. Uh, Joe hit me with a stumper, which was, what's this guy's name? I went, um, Morgan. Morgan. I said, yeah, you know, like, uh, Henry Morgan, the, the pirate. And he said, uh, uh, okay, um, but what's his first name? I said, well, uh, Henry. Actually, he said, no, he said, Morgan what? And I said, and I said, Morgan the Raider, like, like, like Henry Morgan pirate and he goes I uh, can't use that because that, that Henry Morgan is the name of two actors it was actually Henry Morgan and Harry Morgan at the time right um, and so I said uh, reaching into my <laughs> in my in my bag of tricks uh, my older brother just had a baby boy and he named him Travis and Joe said, Travis. I said, yeah, you know, like at the Alamo. And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that could work. So that's how Travis Morgan came about. So um, they, they launched the series with um, first issue special number eight. And uh, it was off and running. Uh, I guess it was the only, the only title in that series that went on to become its own, its own book. Um, and imagine my surprise when 
I had uh, delivered the, the pencil pages for issue number three of the Warlord and went to pick them up and I would always do a proofread before I ever left the office to make sure that nobody had screwed up. If, if, you, if you spot a mistake, you can get a change right there on the spot where if you, if you take it home, by the time you get back, you might forget uh, or overlook something. And uh, imagine my surprise when I turn to the last page and I read the words, the end. And uh, turn to Billy said, this is a mistake. It's supposed to say next issue and the title. And Joe said, yeah, Carmine canceled the book. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and I was outraged. I said, you can't do that. He promised me a year's run. And Joe said, uh, he lied. Uh, he knows that. And it's uh, <laughs> so, good to know for future yeah, reference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so there I was, uh, you know, out of luck. Uh, there, there was nothing I could do. And uh, but fortunately for me, fortunately for the warlord, um, a couple of weeks later, Jeanette Kahn walked through the door and canceled Carmine Infantino. Uh, Jeanette had been studying the, the whole lineup uh, at, at DC. She was a very astute cookie. Um, knew the operations of the company inside and out, every aspect of it, before she ever took over. And the uh, first thing she did was ask for the publication schedule, the printing schedule. And took a look and she said, where's the warlord? Turns out that that was one of her favorite titles. In fact, I believe it was her favorite title at the time. And um, they said, well, Carmine canceled it. And she said, Carmine's not here anymore, put it back. And that's how the warlord survived. And uh, so they jumped back in and, and um, you know, the rest is pretty much history. That's um, a that's a, a heck of a like a revival story than I've ever heard. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, like I said, a, a lot of it is plain dumb luck. Uh, right place at the right time, right moment. Someone comes in, has a powerful influence on your career, and um, uh, changes everything for you. And Jeanette and I uh, always had a, uh, a warm, close relationship uh, the whole time. We always go along really, really well. Well, that's great. Well, before we change topics to another of your uh, great creations, we're going to take our first ad break. So, again, listeners, these ads help keep the lights on in the Geek Ultimate Alliance Network. We don't get to choose what ads come on, and they could be a bit loud. So I'll give you that three count before they come on. Three, two, one. We'll be right back. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. So of changing gears from Warlord to your uh, another of your famous uh, creations is John uh, John Sable Freelance has always been one of my personal favorites and I love how the series is a cross between James Bond and a pulp fiction crime series can you talk about how um, I mean again a, a big shift from Warlord to John Sable the kind of how that character came about uh, yeah you're exactly right uh, by the way uh, I was uh, powerfully influenced by Mickey Spillane who was and still is one of my favorite writers um, and uh, I learned a lot of lessons uh, about storytelling especially mystery storytelling by reading his books uh, Mickey always said um, he wrote the last page first so he knew where the hell he was going and uh, the only time I ever got in trouble was when I tried to do it uh, differently <laughs> I, I wrote myself into a corner and and couldn't figure out how the hell I was going to end the story then one night it was as if Agatha Christie flew in the window and kissed me right on the typewriter and uh, I solved my problem just like that um, again the theme of this is luck right <laughs> yeah yep yep um, uh, first comics uh, came about in uh, early 1980s and uh, I got a phone call from my old buddy Mike Gold who had been with DC uh, he'd been a PR guy at DC and um, he said we're firing up a company called First Comics and we'd like you to come over here and and do a, a book for us and he gave me carte blanche anything you want anything at all and uh I thought this would be a great chance for me to do the kinds of stories that I really always wanted to do. Um, my, my first attempt at a comic strip was a hard-boiled private detective called Iron Mike, um, and and uh, it was it was silly and over the top, but uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I eventually actually used a couple of the 
story plots for Sable uh, when I go on to doing that. Uh, but the, the, the idea that I had with Sable was that um, I would do the, the kind of subject matter that I was interested in and the kind of thing that would bring out my best work. Uh, stuff that would, would inspire me. You know, I had the, the whole Africa theme going. Um, I had been a huge Africa buff from the time I was a little kid. I was a giant Tarzan fan. Um, and uh, I, I gave him a background as a professional hunter. Um, I've, I've been a hunter all my life because where I grew up in northern Wisconsin, the area was so depressed, uh, we were tied for first uh, among the most depressed areas in the United States, tied for first with Appalachia. And that was not fun. If your dad didn't hunt, the family didn't eat meat. I mean, that's all there was to it. And so um, I, I created the character uh, to um, fit my own needs, uh, my own uh, desires, that I thought would bring out the best in me, and to fit him into the world of comics, um, I wanted to break as many rules as possible. So um, I made him essentially the reverse of Batman. Uh, there was none of this by day the mild-mannered whatever fill in the blank, and by night the dark avenger. Uh, Everybody knows that Sable is Mr. Blood and Guts. Um, what they don't know is that he also has a softer, gentler side uh, that he, uh, he, has, he writes children's books about a troop of leprechauns living in a fairy mound in Central Park. Uh, that, that's all based on stories that my Irish Aunt Maggie told us kids. And uh, I was always fascinated by by that kind of stuff, but we folk. And so um, I combined all of that and uh, came up with came up with Sable. Um, the Sable antelope is has uh, got this uh, uh, black and white pattern on his face, and that became the the inspiration for the the battle mask, the the face paint that Sable wears. It's not meant as a disguise. The only time he wears any kind of a disguise at all is when he has to do a personal appearance as uh, the children's author. Mm -hmm. uh, he uses a, a pen name, B.B. Flim, F-L-E-M-M. When you write it out, it doesn't, doesn't look bad at all, but when you say it, it's terrible, right? <laughs> and, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it, essentially, it was a, a chance to have fun with the genre uh, poke a little fun at uh, some of the um, well-established uh, themes in comics, and uh, it it paid off. Um, unfortunately, when ABC TV got a hold of it for a very short-lived, thank God, TV series, um, they reversed my reverse and made it exactly like Batman. Uh, by day, the mild-mannered children's author. By night, the Dark Avenger. And, <laughs> and, you, and you're like, you, be... and you're like, did yeah. you read the story? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Too late. That's 
that's where I learned the hard lesson about uh, just like just like uh, Carmen Infantino, you know, they lie to get what they want, and once you sign your name on the dotted line, they're going to go off and do whatever they damn well please. So you just have to grin and bear it. That's that's about it. You, you know, you, you kind of mentioned, you know, the, the, the mystery in the globe trotting of the series would take us on an initial 56 run. And, and I, oh, I've always had a lot of fun reading it at that point, especially I got, I was, that was a day one backing for me when you did the Kickstarter to put it back out there in, in a prestige format. Um, the series itself, um, I, I've seen it referred to as the precursor to what they deem as the dark age of comics, which made up the mid late eighties. Um, now, would you agree that Sable, would you agree of Sable being linked to that designation? Um, almost certainly so. Um, excuse me. While it, <clears throat> excuse me, while it was not my intent, um, it did lead on to uh, my work on uh, Green Arrow: The Long Bow Hunters. Um, uh, again, uh, Mike Gold came into the picture, and uh, he had gone. Uh, back to work at DC Comics and phoned me up and said that he was editing over there and what would it take to get me to bury the hatchet and come back to work uh, because I had I had left DC to, to do independent stuff and uh, he asked me if there was any character over there that I liked well enough and um, my first thought was that I had I always felt that I'd done such a crappy job on Batman that I would like another shot at uh, redemption on that. But um, just a, a week or so before, I had dinner with Frank Miller, who told me his idea for uh, The Dark Knight. And I said, when Frank's done with The Dark Knight, you can put a period at the end of the Batman sentence for another 20 years. And so far, I'm, <laughs> so far I'm off. Uh, yeah. So far I'm off by 15 years, you know? Um, yeah. And, and Mike Golden said, well, what about Green Arrow? I said, Green Arrow has always been my favorite comic book character. Still is. Even among the stuff that I've created. Well, why, what, what appeals to you with, about Ollie and, and the character? Uh, <clears throat> in, in Denny's run, um, Green Arrow is the, the perfect opposite to Green Lantern. Green Lantern was letter of the law. He was you know, basically Judge Dredd with a power ring. Um, the law, the law, the law, the law. Um, and Ollie was the spirit of justice. He was Robin Hood. And I, I like that. Um, that. It's always been my take on a character, and, and that's, that's where, where uh, I started off as my base point. Um, I shot a bow from the time I was, I think I was four years old when I shot my first bow. And, of course, at four years old, I, I must have pulled it back about six inches, something like that. And the arrow might have flown two feet, I don't remember, but it stuck in the ground. And... That was it. I mean, that's just the coolest thing when you're a little kid. And so, from the time I was little, um, I was always a huge fan of the Robin Hood uh, TV series and and the movie. And uh, I, I was I was that little kid running around 
uh, in, in Longbow Hunters, there's a scene, a uh, flashback of Ollie uh, as, as a young child uh, running around. He's got uh, a stick bow and uh, arrows stuck down the back of his T-shirt. And that was me. That was me. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. So just, just always had a, a strong appeal. I've, I've shot a bow since then uh, pretty much all my life. Um, and it's it's fun. It's it, it's it's not a superpower. It's a skill, and it's a skill that anyone can acquire if they're willing to practice. Um, mm-hmm. Gina Davis, the actress, um, had never shot a bow in her life until um, one day she was at a friend's place, and the um, friend was an archer, and got her started shooting. And two years later, she missed qualifying for the U.S. Olympic team by one point. I mean, that's, 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 that's yeah, yeah. that's how, <laughs> right. If, if you, if you go out and buy a bow today and shoot, if you practice shooting a hundred arrows a day in less than a month, you'll be splitting arrows. Um, it's, it's just something that anyone who has the, the, the will and the dedication to practice constantly can acquire that skill. And that that just has a, a very powerful attraction to me. Uh, I've taught a lot of people to shoot, and uh, one of my one of my friends uh, who still calls me since I, I I took him out in the backyard, uh, showed him the basics, and uh, I said, "Now, when when you split your first arrow, don't pull it out. Just come and get me, and we'll glue it together." and uh, We'll, uh, you know, glue the two arrows together, and you hang it on your wall for a trophy. And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, sure." And half an hour later, he comes in my studio, and he says, "Sensei, you got to come see this." <laughs> okay, and there it was, perfect Robin Hood. I mean, he he split that shaft right down the middle. That that is, it's like you said, just practice and uh it, it'll right. get there right right <laughs> um you know you made some changes at the time that uh that to some were a bit surprising with, with ollie in the sense of no more trick arrows avoiding the references to any of the fantastic elements of the dc universe and you didn't call them green arrow outside of one issue in the beginning of the longbow hunters what i particularly right. loved about your run is how you made ollie the urban hunter growing up uh, going up against non-superpowered real-world villains that were basically ripped from the headlines of uh, crime stories that you were reading about. You know, why did you feel that these changes were necessary to bring to the character? Well, the the urban hunter that actually came from Michael uh, when when I was uh, lamenting my poor run on uh, Batman. He said, uh, uh, "Think about Green Arrow." And uh, I said, yeah, always been my favorite character. And he said, well, think about this. Green Arrow is an urban hunter. All right? That, that phrase right there was what I, I based the entire series on. Um, the, the other changes that, that came about, um, first starters, uh, Denny had done a story wherein Green Arrow accidentally killed a guy. And 
if some, something like that is about to happen, you shoot arrows at people, right? Um, they, I've, I've seen uh, other takes on Green Arrow uh, where um, supposedly he's using knockout arrows. Excuse me, if you're going to shoot a hole in someone to introduce <laughs> the, the, the knockout drugs, right? That you shoot, you shoot a hole in them, and uh, the human body's kind of messy. It tends to leak, you know? And Just a little bit. Out, yeah, <laughs> stuff comes out of that hole. So <clears throat> um, I've, I've, I, wanted to, I wanted to get to the point where um, uh, unlike Denny's take where uh, uh, Ollie had gone off his nut joined the monastery, shaved his head um, and uh, vowed that he would never ever take another human life. Well, I couldn't do the kinds of stories I wanted to do um, and, and have that go on. Um, in, in my way of thinking, um, a person can be hardcore dedicated uh, against the violence but if you push them too far pull the right pull the right trigger push the right buttons um, you better watch out and uh, you know I'm, Lord uh, a mother will kill to protect her child a husband will kill to protect his wife his family uh, uh, people who are otherwise uh, against violence, um, kill in defense of their country all the time. And it's, it's uh, just a fact. And so in order to get Ollie to that stage where I could do stories, I, excuse me, uh, where geez, even, even Robin Hood killed the bad guys, right? Um, true, very true. I, 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 right, I, so I had to make some, some changes and I had to give him a reason for that change. Now, the, the trick arrows were easy because they're just stupid. Um, the, the concept of a, of a boomerang arrow always scared the hell out of me. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever thrown a boomerang, but those boogers come back. And, and if, if you think they go away fast, they come back, seem to come back even faster. Uh, I, I read the instructions on how to throw a boomerang, and I took one throw, and dang, if it didn't do perfectly what the book said, and it came back and almost took my head off. Uh, I was, it was on its way, uh, maybe about 10 feet out when my brain said, duck, and I did, and it, <laughs> smashed, it smashed into the barn behind me and, and left a, a divot in the wood about half an inch deep. So, um, yeah, that, that was uh, pretty idiotic to have an arrow to come back at you. Um, but the, uh, the, the other changes that I, I made to the character visually um, were uh, partly for practicality. Um, I don't know if you've ever been out to Seattle, but it has a tendency to rain. Yes. Uh, not, not all the time, just say from uh, the first week of September through June. Uh, you know, you get you get uh, um, a light rain that goes on for most of the winter. Uh, I think we had 101 days of precipitation uh, the year that I moved out there. Um, 
Just a lot. Just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I moved him to Seattle uh, to uh, give a sense of real world, to anchor him in the real world. And um, I picked Seattle because I'm from a small town in northern Wisconsin. I've only ever lived in three cities or near three cities in my life. Chicago, where I went to art school. Um, uh, New York, where I broke into comic industry and finally uh, Seattle where I was living at the time so and and you want to have have um, enough authenticity uh, in your background because your the, the city essentially becomes a character in your story and it it influences a lot of everything that your character does whether um, consciously or subconsciously so, um, couldn't have him running around in leotards. Uh, I wanted to put him in proper trousers and give him a, a long sleeve shirt that would uh, keep his arms warm and, and dry. And that's that's where the hood came on. Yeah, um, makes sense. Yeah, did away with a little uh, Robin Hood cap and, and uh, put the hood on the character. Um, but for the, <clears throat> the the principal change in the character. Uh, which is where um, he breaks that promise that he had had vowed to never take another human life. Um, I had to give him a reason, and that reason was Dinah. Um, Dinah and Ollie had the, uh, arguably, and in fact, I, I still maintain that uh, they had the best sex life in comics, uh, whether or not it was ever shown. Uh, <laughs> Uh, until I came along, they they were in and out of a sack, a lot, and uh, no mention of, of marriage or anything like that. They were just two people happily screwing their way through life, and uh, um, so I I I made that that decision to change the the character uh, fundamentally, and. Uh, how I did that was I put Dinah into a deadly situation. Uh, Ollie finds her. Uh, she'd been captured by the bad guys, strung up to a forklift in a warehouse, and uh, her clothes are shredded. She's been beaten to a pulp, and the the chief bad guy is coming at her with a knife. And... Ali has already demonstrated that he has the skills and ability to shoot that knife out of the guy's hand, but he doesn't. Instead, he shoots him square through the heart. And that's a decision that he made at that moment, influenced by whatever, whether it was uh, emotion, anger, desperation, um, doesn't make any difference. It all comes down to a choice, a decision that he made to kill the guy. Why? Because the son of a bitch deserved it. Um, and there was just no two ways about it. There's also no going back from it. Uh, in the later story, I likened it to stepping off a cliff. Once you jump, you can't change your mind and go, hey, wait a minute, uh, maybe I shouldn't have done this. You're, you're, you're on a one-way trip down to the bottom, and you have to live or die with the consequences, and 
that's very much what happened with Ollie. Um, it comes back to another theme uh, of mine, which is um, there are consequences for your actions. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ollie paid the price, Dinah paid the price. Um, they, they chose the lifestyle that they're in that ultimately led them to the situation that they were in. And it, it, it's not like, <laughs> I was going to say, it's not like comic books where um, the, the hero gets shot in the arm um, on one page and the next page he's all better or the next issue he's all better. If you're going to try to base your stories in real life, um, you have to follow up with what happened last. How, how is it that he's able to do this when he was in such bad shape the last time we saw him? Um, and, and what are the consequences? Will the at, what is the aftermath? <clears throat> and I followed through with that uh, a number of times um, with uh, Ollie and Dinah in particular. That pivotal incident uh, had long-reaching ramifications in their relationship. Um, they, they go from having this really intense sex life and um, being extremely close to, to a situation where she can't stand to be touched. And uh, Ollie's got his own demons. He's, he's dealing with the choice that he made to kill this guy. And... Uh, um, it, it just follows through, but at the at the crux of my whole arc on the Green Arrow character, uh, it's a love story. It's a love story between mm -hmm. Ollie and Dinah, and uh, always was intended that way. And um, it was it was uh, uh, it's it's the arc that carries through. From start to finish, it's all about the relationship. Uh, at least, at least it was until they screwed everything up and married them off. Like, <laughs> that is that is the death knell, the death knell of a comic character. Just like it, it, it didn't it didn't work for Magnum PI or Remington Steel. So what the hell made them think it was going to? They're saying this time it'll be different because we'll do it right. And <laughs> yeah, no, no, nope, nope. That's yeah, that's that's jumping the shark. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it, it's eighty issues from not from eighty eight to ninety three. You know, just what I consider, and I'm not the only one who considers the definitive run of the character. You know, you do you feel vindication from what when you made those changes and a lot of people, like, how dare you change him to this like that to what the that this that portrayal has endured not only in the comics, but in TV shows like Arrow. They, they have kind of kept with that kind of darker tone, the more serious tone at that point. Do, do you feel that vindication? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. They wouldn't have had an Arrow series if it hadn't been for Longbow Hunters, because there there was no Green Arrow comic before the Longbow Hunters. You know, he he had never had a a, a solo title, and um, one one leads to the next. Um, now, was it exactly like mine? No, but it was 
similar enough. Um, you can't help but see the the source inspiration. Oh yeah, there. yeah. I'll gladly take credit <laughs> for it. Um, there. Yeah, and, and and as far as vindication goes, I I think the the my greatest moment of vindication was at the end of the Iron Man movie when Robert Downey Jr. stood up and said, <laughs> "I'm Iron Man." <laughs> like, yeah, okay, uh, there uh, you go. Yeah, you get. I remember <laughs> when that you know how much saying how dare Mike Rell reveals the identity of the world, and I was one of the few that saying, you know what? Um, I actually thought that was a good choice. For, for for you to do it based on how many different times he had uh <laughs> you know come close to the edge or making people mind wipe at that point i i, I think it's it, that's definitely endured with the character i i, I always thought that it, it was foolish to think that he could fool anybody uh, especially uh, the, the way the character had evolved before i came along um to where Tony Stark was the exact same size and shape as the Iron Man suit, okay? I mean, he went from being uh, 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 basically an ordinary kind of a guy but with a brilliant mind to uh, being a muscle-bound character with shoulders two feet wide and and, uh, a neck that just kind of sloped from his shoulders on up to the top of his head and giant fists and I'm like come on uh, who, who's not going to go oh yeah you know what I'll just <laughs> paint you paint you red and yellow and you are iron man by golly you know hey, hey um, you know what if, if glasses work for clark kent you know <laughs> yeah yeah there's there's that um so uh i i wanted to concentrate on the man inside the suit um you know, the man inside the iron uh, restored his mm-hmm. his humanity and his uh, human weakness, which is he's got this bad heart, and if he doesn't recharge, uh, he could die. And I also added another aspect, which is that he could use the the power from that's powering his heart to power the suit, which leads to the possibility that of self-sacrifice that that he could sacrifice himself if it came right down to it and the the um the way the the story finally played out when when i i decided to uh reveal a secret identity i i had the support and backing of everybody you know the the publisher signed off the editor signed off on it so and i didn't just spring it on people um, much to what people but, want to think, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, what kind of an idiot would do something like that, right? You you don't just just, just arbitrarily um, make a, a fundamental change to a long-established character uh, without consequences. Uh, you, you just can't do that. Uh, the, the company wouldn't stand for it, and uh, the readers, of course, had... No choice in the matter. <laughs> they, were, they were along for the ride, and it was going to be what it was going to be. Um, but the, uh, where the fight started was that there was a powerful disagreement among the readers uh, about how I did it, how to reveal the secret identity. It wasn't some cataclysmic something or other that the one faction felt it should have been. Uh, it was a uh, 
a very small human story. Um, but the but the setup for that story is that um, Pepper Pepper Potts, who had married Tony's best friend Happy Hogan, um, because Tony couldn't have a relationship. Uh, his his Iron Man persona always seemed to get in the way, um, preventing him from getting close to anyone. The, as I saw it, the, the suit that protected him also kept him isolated. And uh, because of um, something that, that Tony does, um, when Pepper gets pregnant, um, she's badly injured and loses mm-hmm. the baby. And Tony saw that as should have been my child. Could have been, right? If only he'd made a different decision and uh, in the in the story where I revealed his identity uh, he's at a press conference at Stark Industries up on the upper level on a, uh, on a patio level and uh, um, bad guys are down the street robbing a bank and uh, as they are making their getaway there's a little boy whose dog breaks away on his leash and runs into the street. The dog's about to get creamed. And Stark doesn't give one second of thought. He goes straight over the edge of the balcony, changes into Iron Man on the way down, and smashes the car to a stop. And all of his friends are pissed because he kept a secret from them all this time, uh, but he revealed it for a dog. He says, I didn't do it for the dog. I did it for him. He points to the little boy. And uh, the, that, that's when the fight started. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the fans on the one side were 100% in my, in my corner. And the other faction was 100% against what had happened. That it should have been something more cataclysmic. Uh, you know, uh, an asteroid about to destroy Earth or something like that, um, something more. And that, that to me, was not what I wanted to do. I, mean, I, I was, again, trying to humanize really the character, focusing on the man inside the suit. And uh, um, because it started a, uh, an active letter campaign, I'm sure that if, if it was today, uh, uh, with the cancel culture that we have, uh, I wouldn't have survived even a week uh, before being shown the door. Uh, and what what finally happened was that uh, my editor, who was on my side, and the publisher uh, had a big disagreement, and uh, an argument broke out in the hallway at Marvel Comics. And the upshot of the argument was that I was out the door. Uh, that was it. <laughs> but you know, total total vindication uh, mm-hmm. in the end, um, thanks to Robert Downey Jr. Yep. <laughs> the the beginning of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is something that, like you said, uh, brought brought to blows literally and figuratively, and it, it it's uh, what started the multi billion dollar uh, you know MCU. Uh, 
you know, we're coming up on uh, on the end of your time, and I want to ask kind of two questions at that point. Uh, first one is, what are are there any established characters that you would ever, that you haven't gotten a chance to write or draw for that you would like to? Captain America, Captain America. I would love a shot at at writing Captain America, um, and and drawing for that matter. Um, although, like I said, uh, uh, writing is a lot more fun than having to do all that damn work as an artist. Uh, but you know, Captain America has always been a longtime favorite of mine ever since I was a little kid and dug out my dad's moldy copy from his footlocker uh, from World War II. Uh, Captain America and Bucky, I'll never forget that. Um, I, I, would, uh, I would jump at the chance. Definitely, I hope you get to the chance. Now, this hopefully leads to one of the questions I didn't directly ask, but besides the Kickstarter, which was very successful, and I know you guys are furiously uh, finalizing the, the first volume of the of yes, the we sable. are. Yeah, it, it's uh, we, we've been we've been fighting with uh, everybody on down the line. <laughs> it, it's interesting when you when you launch something uh, at the at the start of a pandemic and who would have thunk that you wind up with a paper shortage? I'm, really? Come on. <laughs> yeah. But but I, I, I am amongst the many things that this will be well worth the wait, even just, as you said, you learn a lot from the first one so that the next volumes come come about even even quicker. But I'm very excited yes. about that. But um, besides, besides that, is there any other upcoming projects uh, that you want to give a heads up to my listeners that they should pay attention to or be on the lookout for? Yes, uh, I've recently signed a deal for uh, Shaman's Tears Audio Movie Podcast. Uh, audio movie sounds like an oxymoron, but if you think about it, it's essentially going to be like um, a radio show. Okay. Um, it, it's going to have a full musical score, uh, sound effects, uh, professional actors, uh, playing the roles, and uh, that'll be um, aired on the Fantasy Network starting in 2023. Um, we're going into pre-production of it uh, in the fall, and we will be recording in Los Angeles um, in March. So before, before 2023 is out, you'll be able to log on and hear the, the cast of Shaman's Tears. That, that's awesome. Yeah, for those of you who haven't read Shaman's Tears, um, it was published from 93 to 95. The main character, Joshua Brand, he's the son of a half-Sioux father and Irish mother, returns to the reservation where he ran away from at the child and discovers that he has the powers of all the animals of the earth itself and becomes a protector of the planet. So I'm glad you brought that up because that, that's I was like, oh, please bring that up because when I saw you announce that, that was, that was very exciting to get to kind of see – get to hear especially uh you, you've teamed with um uh, uh correct me if i'm wrong like a, a particular native american pr- production company that are going to basically focus on bringing in a- as much of the that particular indigenous tribes to be a part of this correct uh yes uh it's being produced in conjunction with uh native voices uh, out of the Gene Autry Museum in uh, Los Angeles uh, under the direction 
of Delana Studi, who is West Studi's daughter. Uh, West Studi, uh, terrific uh, Native American actor from um, Last of the Mohicans, uh, played Magua and a number of other things. Starred as uh, Geronimo in another production. Um, he's an excellent actor, and, and uh, I'm hoping that he be he can be persuaded by his daughter to take a role in the Shaman's Tears. Personally, I'd love to see him as Greyhawk. Hmm. No, that, that, that would be true. I'll keep my fingers crossed that uh, he, he can uh, definitely take part in that. So we'll, we will definitely be on the lookout for that. And, you know, Mr. Grell, thank you so much for, for taking your time. I know how busy you are w- with similar requests, but like I said, it was an honor to meet you in person. My, I'm literally looking at my uh, sketch you did for uh, Avali right now, and uh, it, it, it's a great pleasure. And um, can you tell my listeners how to follow you if, if they uh, want to continue uh, keeping an eye on uh, not only sh- uh, Shaman's Tears, but uh, anything else you have coming on, in- including con appearances? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm easy to find on MikeGrell.com. Uh, there's also a, a, a Mike Grell fan page on uh, um, Facebook that uh, is authorized. Uh, I don't do Facebook myself. Uh, I, also, I also don't do Twitter, but I am also on Twitter administered by my uh, webmaster. Uh, the, the fan page is... Uh, watched over by Jeff Messer, who is my editor on my uh, Masterstroke uh, Studios imprint. So, if, yeah, if you find if you find information there, it's accurate. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put that in the in the show notes for this. And uh, you know, again, thank you for your time, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for another new episode of World's Finest True Believers. Again, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Finest Believers, and me personally at Chris Balga. You can follow the Geek Ultimate Alliance Network on Twitter at GUA Pod Network, and you can email the show at World's Finest True Believers at Gmail dot com. Feel free to tweet, email if you want to be a guest, provide feedback, ask questions, continue to rate and review the Geek Ultimate Alliance Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever platform of choice may be. You know, thank you all as always, listeners. You all are truly world's finest true believers. And whenever you're listening this morning, afternoon, evening, or in the deepest of night, stay safe out there, everyone. I'll be coming back to you real soon. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.